0: Well, I'm going to continue uh, our series that I started way back in January, but we're only on part four, and uh, Tom was making fun of me for that a few weeks ago, and I, I won't even go, it, he's too easy, but uh, <laughs> so I'll leave him alone for today, but uh, We've had some great weekends the last few weeks. Three weeks ago, there uh, Alex Metala was out from Uganda, and last week, uh, Pastor Ray, the awesome, you know, the grand opening week, and just the, uh, for such a time as this message, just so powerful. And so this series has gotten kind of broken up, but I'm just gonna keep going now. And so we'll do part uh, four of our series on true spirituality. And uh, during this series, we've been looking at misconceptions, common misconceptions that Christians have about what is spirituality? What does God want from us? And uh, and uh, there, you know, and, and many of us, many of you here today, uh, struggle to varying levels with some of these misconceptions. I've had them. We've had them. They're common ones. And as a result of these misconceptions, uh, lots of Christians carry around all kinds of false guilt and condemnation and all this stuff through their life because they don't know what it is that God really wants. And in addition to the condemnation and the guilt that people carry around with them because they don't know what true spirituality is supposed to look like, uh, the other reason I'm just taking these misconceptions on is because if you don't know what God wants, you can't aim for it. And you can't live a life that is pleasing to God if you don't know what true spirituality is supposed to look like. And so today I want to do part four and we're going to talk about money and success today. And particularly, is it bad to have money? Is being successful bad for your spiritual life, all right? Does, is, true, you know, is being wealthy or living in a wealthy society like we, we do today, is, does that automatically make us further away from God than people living in a poor society? We want to talk, I wanna talk about money and success and true spirituality here today. So bow your head with me, close your eyes, and uh, we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just first of all thank you that true spirituality is, ac- is actually its life. It's so freeing, it's so wonderful, it's so good. What you expect of us is so good. Now, Lord, this is a huge topic, money and, money and success and power and influence and how these things affect us. Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, just anoint my tongue today to be able to explain it. I pray that your truth would ring through loud and clear. I pray that all of us would love you more at the end. In your name I pray, amen. You know, if we look at the big picture of Christianity, if we look at Christianity all around the world, we look at all the different denominations and churches and countries and continents, and if we look at Christianity all through history—20 centuries now of Christian history—we have since Jesus left and started the church. If we look at the big picture of Christianity, all the denomin- different denominations, countries, and churches, and history—all of you know the big grand scheme of and scope of Christianity—we would find that always, at all times, and in all churches. There is a a strain of thought that has always gone along with Christianity and there's always been groups of people and everybody's touched by it, some people more than others, but there's always been a strain of thought that treats money as if it is something bad in and of itself. There's always been this strain of thought... That people think of money as some, somehow, you know, having money or being wealthy somehow automatically makes you a little bit unspiritual or brings you further away from God. That somehow money is unspiritual or some people would even say uh, evil. And this is why, you know, most Christians, when you think of heroes of the Christian faith, most of us think of poor people. And so most people, you want to talk about, you know, heroes of the Christian faith, we talk about people like, you know, from way back, St. Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or many of the amazing men and women of God who started the modern day, uh, I was going to say Mennonite movement, I meant missionary movement. Um, Men and women like, you know, Gladys Aylward and and Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael. You know, people who left everything and then they went and lived in very poor countries to spread the gospel. And so, and, and again, all these people, amazing men and women of God. And they challenge us and to read their stories and learn from them. So amazing. But what's happened is that a lot of Christians today have gotten this idea that that is the only way to be spiritual. The only way to be spiritual is to be poor, is to leave everything behind, to give everything away and become poor. That's the only way to really get close to God. And so, uh, you know, I, talk, I talked to a, a man recently and uh, he was telling me about the church where he grew up and, and he talking about how in a church where he grew up, you know, if your business started to do a little bit too well or your business started to grow and you started to make some money, you would start to hear comments from some of the church leaders because then you were considered to be worldly or you were getting proud. Just because your business was doing well. And of course, uh, most of us have known, you know, petty minded Christians. Sometimes we've been the petty minded ones, right? Where, you know, the moment you see someone drive up the church, right, with, a, with the car is a little bit too nice. You know, the clothes are a little too nice. The house is a little too big. Right away, what, what's the judgment? Well, they're a little worldly. You know, if they were really following Jesus, they wouldn't drive a car that nice. And uh, of course, it's always one that's a little nicer than ours, right? Ours is always sort of, that's okay. But if it's nicer than ours, if it's bigger than ours, if they were really following Jesus, they wouldn't go to that level of luxury. Isn't that true? And of course, like I said before, many of us just feel this uh, constant gnawing sense of guilt. You know, whenever you hear missionaries talk about what's going on in, in China or India or Africa, many, many believers here in North America automatically feel guilt. And we think that we are somehow just by virtue of living in, an, in a wealthy society, many of us feel like we are inferior spiritual beings, that we're farther from God just because we live in a wealthy society. And so the question today is, does living in an affluent society, a wealthy society like we do here in North America, automatically make us unspiritual? Does living in a wealthy, affluent society automatically you know, put us at a disadvantage. God loves us a little bit less. He's not as concerned with us as he is with Christians who are poor or who live in a poor society. Well, if we look through Scripture, there's a lot of Scripture passages that seem to answer that question, yes. And again, throughout this whole series, we found that all of these misconceptions about spirituality, they're always built on passages of Scripture. That's why they're common misconceptions. Because you can, it looks like you can find them in the Bible. And there's certainly a number of passages in here that seem to suggest that having money or having things, having stuff, being wealthy is, is a- actually makes you, you know borderline sinful, unspiritual. And I want to just do a quick survey of some of those passages. Let's look at some of those passages right now. Luke 6, 24-25, Jesus said this, But woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So, I mean, if all we had in the Bible was that one passage, that would be bad news for pretty much all of us here today, okay? And uh, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and, we, and these are in the, in the Bible, so we have to take them seriously. It matters what we believe about these passages, okay? If Jesus is saying there in Luke 6, that you are automatically doomed, you're automatically doomed to hell, you're automatically woe, you're automatically away from God for being rich, then we need to obey that and we need to get unrich very quickly, okay? James 5, 1-3, to another uh, classic here, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten.'" Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And again, here's another passage where, I mean, we have to take this seriously. This is God's word, And it sure seems to be saying that we're we're toast if we're rich. And again, for the average person here today, the average person in our society today uh, is is wildly rich you know compared to any of the richest people you know going throughout history. We are very wealthy. And so these passages do apply to us. How do they apply to us? And then of course there's the famous passage of the rich young ruler, and I want to spend some time on this one today, in Luke chapter 18, right? Uh, the story of the, of the rich man who goes to Jesus. Why don't we read that one? That one has given many of you, I know, if you're anything like me, it's given me fits many, time in my li- many times in my life. I read Luke 18 in the story of the rich m- young man and I go, Jesus, why is this in there? And it bothers us, right? Well, let's, let's read it. Luke 18, starting in verse 18, and a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have. Right? Sell everything. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then, who can be saved? That's a very good question because, again, most of us here today by any standards of history would count as rich and would count as being people of wealth. And Jesus says to the rich man, you need to go and sell all that you have. And after that, he follows that up by saying how hard it is for people of wealth to get into the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but I have gone away from this passage many a time in my life sad, just like the rich young man. And I'm I, no doubt some of you, and, and some of you have gone away from messages where preachers have preached on this one, and you've gone away sad, thinking, is this the only way to follow Jesus, is to give away absolutely everything we have? Because if that's what it's saying, if you own a house now, or you own a car, or you've got savings, or you have anything else like that, then you need to sell that, is that, is that what the scripture is telling us, that, it's, that you're not allowed to own anything if you want to follow Jesus? Well, before I I answer that question, we, as I've been doing, whoa, There's was a big fly. Uh, (laughs) I don't like bugs. (laughs) It was a big one. It was like this big. I'll show you on the video later anyway. as we've been doing throughout this series, misconceptions of, of, of spirituality, again, people take one passage and they don't look at what the whole scripture says, so what we need to do again, as we've been doing throughout this whole series, is what does the whole Bible say about money? And then we have to come back and say, okay, what's going on in these passages? What does the whole Bible say? And one of the things you need to know is that the Bible makes some very important distinctions about money and spirituality and having money. And uh, when I was first uh, learning this truth, I was in university and I was really zealous for God and passionate for God. And of course, when you're, when you're in university, I had no money. And so it's real easy to be passionate about people not having money when you don't have any. And, uh, and so I was one of those guys that just thought, you know what, you know, having money and owning all this stuff, we just need to, we need to just sell it all and live out for Jesus. And uh, and so I was one of those guys. I remember I was having a conversation with my dad once on the phone. I was out in school in in BC there. And I forget what we were talking about, but we were something. We were in a conversation. And and, and part of the conversation, for whatever reason, it came over to the thing of money. And I talked about how money is the root of all evil. I mean, we've all heard that that phrase before. And I talked about how money is the root of many evils or is a major root of evil. And my dad, uh, I'll never forget this, around the phone, he said, no, it's not. I said, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. I mean, I'm 20. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, money is a money is root of, of lots of evils in the world. And he said, no, it's not. It's not in the Bible. I said, yes, it is. For sure it's in the Bible. I know it's in Paul. I said, I can't think of the verse right now, but I know it's in the Bible somewhere. Paul says money is the root of, of a lot of evil. And my dad said, no, it's not again. And I thought, I was just getting a little exasperated. And so we finished off the conversation. I'm, I'm going to go look this up. And, uh, and so I took up my Bible and I started to look up uh, money and evil and these, this is one of the, this is the first verse that I found 1 Timothy 6:10 and it actually it did shock me. I actually thought I was right. I was quite convinced of it. And it was the first time in my life I was wrong and I haven't been wrong too many times since. But anyway, 1 Timothy 6:10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I just thought, oh. okay, dad was right on that one, but I know there's another verse somewhere. <laughs> and so I kept looking up because I know money's a reveal. It's not the love of money, it's, the, it's money. Hebrews thirteen five. I found this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you so there again we have this idea of the love of money it's not money that's evil it's the love of money that's evil and then there's second timothy 3 verse 1-5 paul says this but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. By the way, does does this description not perfectly capture Canadian society today? Lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God perfectly prophetically bang on about our society today but once again we see that paul does not call money evil nowhere does the bible teach that money is evil over and over again the bible teaches that the love of money is what is evil, not money itself. And this is true, like I said, throughout most of the Bible. And so, dad was right in that one, and I had to swallow my pride and, and change a little bit of my thinking and realize money itself is not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. And the moment I recognized that and realized that, uh, another truth just came, just, just came right into my heart immediately and opened my eyes to a whole bunch of things. And, and the first thing is that lots of the most godly people in this book were very rich lots and lots of people. Lots of them were poor too. I don't know we're not putting out the poor ones now. Okay, we have much to, to look up to, but I immediately, I, my mind, the Holy Spirit just started bringing to my mind how many absolutely godly, in love with Jesus, close to God people are in this book who were not just a little bit rich, they were very rich, I wanna just do a quick survey for you because I want you to see this because before we can talk about these passages that talk about rich people and a rich young ruler and that sort of stuff, you have to to see that the Bible as a whole, we have to take this thing as a whole. And what does it say about money? And so I just wanna do a quick survey of some of the wealthy people in scripture. For example, Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Genesis 13 verse two says this. Now Abraham was very rich, not just a little bit rich. Abraham was not just moderately wealthy. He was not just well off. The Holy Spirit says he was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Okay, and this isn't the only passage that talks about it. Genesis 24, 34 to 35, Abraham's chief servant says this. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. So uh, Abraham's servant says, God himself has made my master very rich. So Abraham was not just a little bit rich. He was not just a little bit well off. He was very rich. And you know what else the Bible says about him? James chapter 2 verse 23. The same James where he talks about the rich being evil. Now look what he says about a very rich man, Abraham. He says this. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. A very rich man, also called a friend of God. And think about that: when a Bible, when I mean, the Bible is inspired by God. When God calls you a friend of God, that's quite something. Abraham was close to God. God said he's a friend of mine, and he was very rich. So obviously, it is possible to have a lot of money and a lot of stuff and still be very close to God. And we could go through scads of other people in the Old Testament. Isaac and Jacob and David and Hezekiah, all men who loved God, who listened to God, who suffered for God, and who also were very rich. Of course, some of you might say, well, okay, well, that's the Old Testament and I was back in the Old Testament when you could be rich and spiritual at the, t- at the same time. But now since the New Testament, it's vow of poverty time, Chris. It's uh, hippie commune time. And anybody who has wealth or a car or anything like that is, is not close to Jesus' heart, is not on the same wavelength as Jesus. Well, let's also look in the New Testament then a little bit. And a quick survey there. And we find that Jesus also had very, that there were wealthy followers of Jesus who loved Jesus, followed Jesus, and were influential leaders in the early church. Uh, For example, Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He was rich and he was also a disciple. So you could be a disciple of Jesus. You could be a follower of Jesus and you could be rich. How about Nicodemus? Uh, Famous passage there in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is the one who who, uh, comes to Jesus in the night and uh, asks him to explain being born again. And we know from the rest of Scripture and also from other uh, uh, ancient Jewish sources that Nicodemus later gave his life fully to Jesus and became an influential leader in the early church. Okay? And we read this about Nicodemus in John 19 verse 39 after Jesus died. And the time of burial came, Nicodemus came, and this is what happened. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. So when they would embalm the bodies in those days, they would bring all these spices, myrrh and aloes and different spices, to embalm the body. Now the thing you have to understand about these spices is they were unbelievably expensive. Really, really, really expensive. In Roman times, myrrh was often uh, worth more than its weight in gold. Very expensive. Which is why it, most people, when they would have a funeral, if they, if they had enough money to even have this, some people wouldn't have any spices, okay? But if they had enough money even to really kind of have a, a funeral, they, most funerals would have half a pound to a pound of spices. Because it's too expensive to have any more than that, Okay. And we know from other writings that some of the Caesars, the, you know, because they would always do everything over the top, and when they were buried, they'd have these huge, you know, uh, uh, funerals and stuff and, and whatever. They would sometimes have 50 or 60 or 70 pounds of spices for their bodies and stuff like that. Nicodemus did 100 pounds for Jesus. We are talking about tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we know from uh, other sources, there's another uh, uh, Jewish source from, the, from around this time where that, said, that talks about Nicodemus and his wealth. And it was said that Nicodemus had enough wealth by himself to support an entire city for 10 years. So this was a man who was incredibly, unbelievably, staggeringly wealthy for his times, and yet we know he was also sold out for Jesus and, a, and an important leader in the, in the early years of the church. It's possible to be rich and close to Jesus. We see that right in the Bible. And there's one third example I want to share with you because I think this one will just surprise you a little bit. Um, I wonder how many of you have ever thought about or asked yourself the question as you're reading the Gospels. A lot of us just kind of read them and we never stop to ask questions. I encourage you to ask questions. That's how you get into it. But I wonder how many of you have ever stopped to think, how did Jesus and his disciples support themselves while while they were doing all this ministry? You ever think about that? Like some of us, we just, we just don't think about that at all, right? We just think, you know, well, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000. You know, I bet the disciples every morning, they just got up and there was, hey, I got another croissant in my pocket and they just keep going, doing ministry. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is, he's traveling all over Israel. The last three years of his life, three in a little bit, he's got 12 disciples with him. They all quit their jobs. So you've got 13 grown men traveling all over, doing ministry full time. How did they eat? How'd they buy new sandals? How do, where did they sleep? How'd they get taken care of? And, and it was more actually than just, you have to think of it as bigger than just 13 men too. Uh, we usually just think of Jesus traveling around, just the 13 of them, but we know from other passages that there were times when he sent out 72 disciples. And scholars tell us he had a much bigger entourage than just 12, uh, depending on, on who's, who's guessing. People, you know, many scholars think he had 120 or more regularly in his entourage and for three years they, they were doing this. How did they how did they get supported? Who is supporting them this whole time? Who's paying for this stuff? Well in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 we get a little glimpse, a little window into Jesus' ministry and how his ministry was paid for. I think it's very interesting. We'll start in verse 1. Soon afterward he, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, uh, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. So as part of Jesus' entourage, he had some wealthy women women okay? One of whom was this woman named Joanna who had, who Jesus did some kind of deliverance with, but she was married to King Herod's, you know, chief manager, his household, his estate manager. This, these were very, very wealthy people. Jesus did ministry with her and then she's following him around and Jesus didn't tell her, hey Joanna, you need to give everything you have to the poor and then come follow me. He doesn't tell her that. She comes along with him and finances his ministry, Her and some other wealthy women, and provided for them out of their means. And so, when we look at the 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 totality of Scripture, we find that money is not evil or good; it's neutral. You can be wealthy and close to God, or you can be wealthy and far from God. You can be poor and close to God, or you can be poor and far away from God. Being poor, being rich. Doesn't say anything about the level of your spirituality. What kind of a car you have, how big your house is, all these things. Don't say anything from the outside. God only knows the heart about your spirituality because money is actually neutral. And this is why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17-19, Paul gives instructions to rich people in the church. And it would be right here. I mean, if if we're all supposed to, if the only way to be spiritual is to sell everything to the poor so we can follow Jesus, then it would be right here that Paul would tell us, hey, if you're rich, you better become unrich in an awful hurry or you're not going to be able to walk with God. And that's not what Paul says in, in his instructions to rich people in the church. Here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And you know, I think a great homework assignment would be, you know, because again, most of us here would qualify as wealthy by the standards of history, I think a great homework assignment would be to take that passage and meditate on it once or twice this week. Because right there, Paul gives us the blueprint, this is how a wealthy person can be spiritual. And he doesn't say, sell it all to the poor so you can be spiritual. He says, this is how in your wealth you can be spiritual. And he talks about generosity and using your stuff for the Lord. That is really important. Okay? So now, we need to go back to Luke 18 and the rich young ruler. Because, I mean, it's a famous passage, we've all read it, we've all heard it preached, and we've all heard it taught, and the question now is, okay, what's going on there? Jesus says to the rich person, sell the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have, sell it all, so you can come follow me. And so, let's look at that passage again, and the first thing I want to look at is two big mistakes we commonly make when we read this passage, and two big mistakes that preachers often make when they teach this passage, okay? Okay. It's very important that we understand what's going on here because when we read that passage, we need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, but we need to be convicted of the right things, not feel guilty for the wrong things. And so the first mistake that people make when they read the rich young ruler or teach the rich young ruler passage in Luke 18 is they think that Jesus' instruction to one person is Jesus' command to everyone. That's the first mistake we make when we read Luke 18. Is we think that Jesus' instruction to one person is Jesus' command to everyone. Okay? Just because Jesus told one person one time to do something does not mean that's what he wants everyone to do for all time. Isn't that true? Different people, different situations, different instructions. I mean, my son Charlie, this morning, getting ready for church, I told him, put on your nice clothes, we're going to church. He wanted to wear some jeans with a big hole in them. I said, forget it, you're not going, I'm a pastor, you can't do that. Okay? But now this afternoon, we're going to Nanny and Papas. He's going to play with his cousins, you know, all day. I don't want to be buying him nice church clothes all the time. I give him different instructions. I say, now you have to wear the pants that have holes in them. Okay? Different situations, different instructions. My daughter Joy, I let her, when she goes to her birthday party, she wants to do something. She wants to paint her nails and put on lipstick. I say, go for it. You're a girl. Great. When my son Charlie goes to her birth- birthday party, I say, you better not be putting on nail polish or lipstick. Different people, right? Different instructions. God called me to be a preacher. If I would have said no to that, I would be in disobedience. But the fact that he called me to be a preacher doesn't mean that you guys are all in disobedience if you're not a a preacher. Obviously. Thank God he didn't call us all to be preachers. Society would fall apart very quickly. This building would fall apart very quickly. Okay? Different instructions, different people. And we see this type of thing throughout Jesus' ministry. He gave different instructions to different people at different times. So with the rich young ruler, Jesus knows what this man's calling is. He knows what's going on. He says, I want you to sell everything so you can come follow me. But there's other situations such as Mark 5, which I'm going to show you right now, where people wanted to get, to leave everything behind and follow Jesus and he wouldn't let them. Mark 5, famous story, Jesus delivers that man with legion, all these demons in him, horribly possessed. And Jesus delivers this man and I want you to see what happens afterwards. So Jesus has delivered him now, this man's in his right mind. And, uh, and now Jesus is going to leave. And, and this man is going to want to go with him. And I want you to see what happens. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, Mark 5, 18. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And so this guy, he wants to be, he's, he wants to be the rich young ruler. He says, I want to leave everything behind. I want to leave my family and all my stuff and my hometown, and I want to just come with you, Jesus, I love you so much. Thanks for delivering me. He wants to leave it all. And look at this. But he, that's Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the demon-possessed man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which was a group of 10 cities there, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And this, by the way, is why it is so important to be able to hear God. There's a lot of Christians today that say, we don't need to hear God anymore because we have the Bible. And the problem with that is the Bible gives us different stories. So how do you know which one you are? Are you the rich man or are you the demon-possessed man? Don't ask your wife, okay? (laughs) You might think you're, one of the de- you're the demon-possessed man, but whatever. Uh, we think, you know, we just think, well, all I have, I, so many churches and, and, and people, and they just think, you don't have to hear God, you just have to have the Bible. Well, which one am I? If, if the demon-possessed man would have done what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, he would have been in disobedience. And it, when, the ru- when the rich young ruler did what, what, what the demon-possessed man was asked to do, he was in disobedience. And so these stories are here for our edification, and, but the point is we still have to seek God's face and know what are his instructions for us today. Is that not true? Now, of course, just a little caveat here that, that is important to always put in. Uh, this does not, I'm not also not going this liberal path here of like, you know, what's right for you is not, right, you know, not necessarily right for me and all that sort of stuff. When it comes to God's laws, God's laws always apply to all people in all situations at all times. So God's law says, do not murder. You don't have to do listening prayer about that. God's law says, you know, don't commit adultery. You don't have to do, you don't have to do listening prayer about that. She's really pretty and I work with her all the time. My wife, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, I, maybe she's the one. No, you don't have to do listening prayer about it. No, it's wrong. Okay? God's laws are always true in all situations for all people at all times. But when it comes to instructions about life and what do you do with your money and some of these different things, These things we have to hear God for. It's one of the big mistakes people make when they read Luke 18 is they think that Jesus' instruction to one person is Jesus' command to everyone. Second mistake that people make is they think that the only way to give Jesus everything you have is to give it all away. That's a mistake mistake most of us make too. We think that the only way to give Jesus everything we have is to give everything we have away. See, because it is true. I mean... The the thing that's true about this story is that Jesus does want everything. He wants your whole life. There's no question. Jesus wants your whole life. He wants all your money. He wants all your time. He wants all your heart. Jesus does want everything you have. Where the mistake comes in is thinking that the only way to give Jesus everything I have is to give it all away. That's not the only way. When we say that Jesus wants everything, what we mean is he wants to be in charge of everything. The way you give Jesus everything you have is not necessarily give it all away because remember Joanna, the wife of, of Herod's ma- uh, you know, head manager, she didn't give all her stuff away. She resourced the kingdom with her, with her stuff. The, the, now did she give away, did she give less away than someone who gives it all away to the poor? No. What we mean when we say that we are to give everything to Jesus is we don't mean you have to give it all away. We mean you have to put him in charge. That's what it means to give Jesus everything. Put him in charge of everything you have. Put him in charge. Lord Jesus, what kind of a house do you want me to live in? What kind of a lifestyle do you want me to live? What should my budget look like? That's how you give Jesus everything. And it first of all starts by following his principles in here. So one of the things it says in here is that if you're following the Lord and you're a righteous person, you will pay people what you owe them. You will pay off your debts. So one of the ways you give Jesus everything is you pay back the people you owe money to. That's one of the ways you give Jesus everything. It also says in here a number of times in Proverbs, it says that a wise person sets aside money and saves and invests a little bit of their money regularly because they don't know what's coming in the future. You know what that means? Jesus wrote, I mean, God wrote this book. Giving Jesus everything means putting him in charge. His word says this is what you do with your money. One of the ways you give Jesus everything is by saving and investing a little bit wisely all the time. And isn't that just go contrary? See, this is where false spirituality and misconceptions about spirituality ruin people. Because people think the only way I can give everything to Jesus is give it all the way to missions and anyone who's saving or investing a little bit, that's a worldly person. No, 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 no. You give everything to Jesus by putting Jesus in charge. And this is one of the things he says to do with your money. So you obey what's in here. That's how we give Jesus everything. And then in addition to that, that's where the listening comes in. And we listen for for further instructions. And that's where the adventure comes in, right? And he does call some people to leave it all behind and go to the mission field. or, Or he does various things like that. But other people he calls to resource the kingdom. So that's where the listening comes in. But this is how we give Jesus everything, all right? Really, really important. So the next time you're reading the story of the rich young ruler in your devotions, you don't need to look at the house you're living in. So I want to make sure you're convicted for the right things when you read that story. When you read Luke 18 in the story of the rich young ruler, the point isn't that you should look at the, you know, the walls around you and the roof and just think, well, I haven't given everything away, therefore I'm not following Jesus. That's not the point. The point isn't that you look at, that you have a car in the garage and you own some things, therefore you can't love Jesus. That's not what you should be convicted for. What you should be convicted for when you read Luke 18, the story of the rich young ruler is, Jesus, are you in charge of all my stuff? Am I using my home for you? Am I living within my means? Do you want me to give more? Where where do you want me to give? Are you in charge of my stuff? Am I using my stuff for the benefit of others and for the advancement of your kingdom? That's what we should be convicted of. Not necessarily that we have to just run out and give it all away. Huge, hugely important thing. And this brings me to my final point, and that is this. Because the truth of the matter is that now, especially now in in these perilous times we're living in, And I mean, we've been telling you here at Southern for a few years already, the time is short, persecution's coming, and what we've seen over the last month is we're just seeing that is starting to happen, starting to become real. And it's right now in these perilous times that God is exactly going to raise some people up and he's going to give out some wealth and he's going to give out some influence and he's going to give some success and he's going to give some power so that we can make a difference for his kingdom. And I want to read you a powerful passage of scripture about King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 says this, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years and David became greater and greater For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God was making him greater and greater. God was making him more and more successful. God was making him more and more rich. God was making him more and more influential. Why? The question is, why was God doing this? Let's keep reading. Verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people israel why did god make david rich why did god make david powerful why did god give david success in everything he did why did god do these things is it because god loved david so much like david I'm going to, you know what, David, I just love you so much. I never want you to have to worry about where your next paycheck's coming from. So I'm going to just give you so much money that you can have, you can just do whatever you want in your life and you can have all kinds of fun and you can travel the world and have a cool car and a big house. That's why I'm giving you all this success, David, because I just love you so much and I want you to have a good life. It's not why. That's not why. The passage tells us why God gave David wealth and power and success and it had nothing to do with David. It had nothing to do with making David's life easier. It had nothing to do with David having a more pleasurable life. It had nothing to do with helping David pay off his house. These are none of the reasons why God gave David wealth and success. God gave David wealth and power and success because he loved the people of Israel. And he looked at these people, his kids, a few million of them or a couple million of them or whatever the number was at that time, but a whole bunch of them. He looked at his kids and he loved them. And he said, I need to to raise up a leader for these people who's going to protect them from the enemies who are all around them. These people need a leader who's going to boldly stand for truth. Because these wicked nations around them, there's so much deception and immorality and sexual stuff and and materialism and greed and that stuff's going to creep in and it's going to ruin my people and I love them too much. I don't want them to fall to that kind of deception. I don't want them to fall into that kind of wickedness and darkness. So I'm going to raise up a leader for them who will boldly speak the truth and will lead them and protect them. Uh, These people need a leader who's going to lead them closer to me. These people need a leader who's going to help them listen to me. These people need a leader who's going to encourage them to love me or else they're just going to go astray. I love these people so much that I'm going to give them a leader to do all these things. And so he looks around and he finds David and he says, there he is. I'm going to give him wealth and power and success to lead these people, not because of him, but because of all these people, to protect them, to shepherd them, to help them. That's why God gave David all that stuff. And I want you to notice the absolute sovereignty of God in all of this. It says up there, go to the next slide there. I think it's underlined in the next one there. Um, it says there, uh, yeah, the Lord had established him. I'm, I'm looking behind you there. But the Lord had established him king over Israel. It, God established David as king. David did not become king because he was so politically savvy. David did not become king because he had the best, you know, election team and, you know, great, you know, lots of ability and talent and they just pumped it up and David did not, you know, David did not become king because, you know, the people all loved him so much even though in the end God helped them and and they did love him. That's not why he became king. He didn't become king because he was so good looking and so wise or so smart or because he worked so hard or any of those things. That's not, that's not what the scripture says why he became king. He became king because God decided he would be king. And God called the angels together and he said, my people, I love them so much, they need a leader. They need a leader who's gonna stick up for them, tell them the truth, help them to love me, help them to understand deception. And I'm, I've picked David. And God said, David in heaven. David didn't come from a, from a family with royal blood. He was the youngest of, of eight sons or whatever it was. I mean, he's a nobody. God said, David's gonna be king in heaven. He said that in heaven. It happened on earth. That's the sovereignty of God. God said, because I love my people. It wasn't for David and it wasn't because of David. It was for his people and it was because God said so. He's sovereign. So he just decides and he says, I'm going to raise him up for the sake of my people. And David himself understood this. First Chronicles 29, verse 11 to 12. David said this about his own life. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. This is now, like 2 Samuel, we looked at, that's at the start of David's reign. This is at the end, just before he dies. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all, everything, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. That is the sovereignty of God. David didn't become great because he worked so hard. Now, he had to do his part. I'm not saying, you know, well, God's so sovereign, he can just lie in bed, and he'll just make you into whatever he's going to make you in. You still have to do your part. You have to do the obedience, but it's in God's hands to make rich and to make successful. Now, here's the thing. We all here today, you know, we believe the Bible, most of us, I'm sure, anyway modern Christians, we believe the Bible, and so we read these stories and we think, that's so cute. God was so sovereign back in those Old Testament times, eh? Back in those Old Testament times, God was really in control. You know, back in those days, David couldn't, couldn't come to power just by his own working. God had to do it in those days but nowadays, you know, it's a few thousand years later, God's a little more tired. He's a little weaker. He's maybe, you know, things are getting a little out of hand with all the modern technology and stuff, And, and today, I'm successful because of me. That's how we feel. We would never say that, especially not in church. We might not even say that to ourselves, but that's the pride we take. My business is so grand because I'm a leader. That's why it's so good. I'm just so successful in what I do as a salesperson. I'm so successful in this other thing I'm doing. I'm so successful as this or that because, because of me, because I'm so smart, because I'm so good, because I work so hard. And the Bible says, no, riches and honor and all belong to him and he gives from them. Who, who wired you the way you are in advance so you could be what you are today? And the thing is, he's so sovereign, he not only does he give it, he's no less sovereign today than he was in Bible times. If it was all him in Bible times, it's still all him today where you are. And the same God who can give it can also take it away just like that. And we all know the story in Daniel of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful leader of the most powerful nation in the world. And one day he looked out over his kingdom and said, look at what I've made. Ha! Look at the organization, I've organized this army so amazing, and I've organized this so amazing, and look at this city, is so amazing, and God said, you have no idea, you think it's all because of you, and then that, that's why I'm going to take it away from you so you know it's all for me, and God snapped his fingers, and right at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar lost his marbles. That's not in the ESV, it's in the, in the KSV, my version, but anyway, he went nuts, and he became like an animal, and he ran out of the city, and he was naked and living in the grass, and everybody's like, oh, Yuck. And he was there for seven years. And then just to prove how sovereign he was. I mean, if one of our political leaders went that nuts, we wouldn't ask him back, would we? I don't think so, okay? Just to prove how sovereign he was, after seven years was up, God said, now I'm going to prove that I'm still in charge. I'm going to put him back in charge. He snapped his finger and all of Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, you know, advisors went out to him and he's buck naked there in the grass, eating grass and claws and hair and everything. The Bible describes it. And they say, would you be our leader again? and they make him king again. That's the sovereignty of God. He just lifts up, he tears down. He's that in charge still today. And here's the thing. Just like with David, he doesn't raise people up for no reason. He didn't give David all kinds of money and power and success because he just wanted David to have a good time. And he hasn't put you where you are. Every one of us here today has some measure of especially in the society we live in, we have some measure of wealth. We have some measure of power. We have some measure of influence. And the same God who is sovereign over David is the same one who's sovereign over you. You don't have that stuff by accident. And you also don't have it for no reason. God hasn't given you all that money and success to whatever level you have it. He hasn't given you all that sort of stuff just so you can travel the world and do all kinds of cool stuff. He didn't give you that stuff just so you can have a big house. Now, I've just gone through this message. It's not bad to have a big house. It's not bad to do a bit of traveling, but that's not why God gave you your wealth and power and success. You think on judgment day, God's going to slap you on the back? Oh, I gave you a lot of money and did you ever have a good time? Oh, wow. I gave you all kinds of I gave you all kinds of stuff and power and influence and you just had, you had an easy life and you had lots of glory and welcome into heaven. That's just what I wanted you to do with it. Never. God made David great for the sake of his people Israel and God gives us wealth and power and influence today not for ourselves. He hasn't given you that stuff just so you can have an easy life. He hasn't given you power and influence just so you can toe the line and do what everybody else does. He's given you power and wealth and success because he wants you to use those things for the benefit of his family, his kids, other believers, and also for the advancement of his kingdom. And God looks down at our world today and he looks down at our nation in particular and he sees millions of, of people who are completely blind and they don't even know it. They're completely blind and they don't even know it and they are daily fed all kinds of lies. They're fed filth and immorality. They're fed lies about the Bible and it's outdated. They're fed lies about Jesus and there's many ways to Jesus and just enjoy your life here. They're fed all these lies and they're just marching into the future and they're marching directly to a place called hell which is very, very real and God sees all of this and he sees a couple million children here in our, in our nation. And he sees this kid, these kids, and they are fed lies from, from the earliest ages. They are fed lies that we human beings are just a product of chance and evolution and random processes. And they're fed lies that biblical morality doesn't work and in fact it's hateful. And just because the, and if the Bible says it's a sin, that's, that's bullying, that's hateful. They're fed all these lies. And God looks at these millions of people marching to hell. He looks at these millions of kids being marched into these lies. And he says, what chance do they have? What chance do they have in a culture that is full of deception and darkness? What chance do these kids have? What chance do these people have? They have no chance unless someone will tell them the truth. And so God looks at this assembly line heading off to hell. Broad as the path, he said, in the Gospels. And he looks for some people who call themselves his followers. And he finds one over there and he says, I'm going to make you a doctor. And he finds another one over there and he says, I'm going to make you a successful salesperson. And he finds another one over there and he says, I'm going to make you a successful business person. And I'm going to make you a teacher. And I'm going to make you a principal. And I'm going to make you all kinds of things. But I'm going to give you varying levels of power and influence and success and money. And the reason I'm doing these things is because I want you to be a voice. I want you to stand up for truth. I want you to tell people about my laws in the face of just overwhelming wickedness and deception and immorality and compromise. I want you to stand for something. And I want you to use your money and I want you to use your success and I want you to use your power to benefit my family, to protect the church, to advance the church to, and to advance my kingdom and to stick up for truth and life. That's why God has given you the stuff you have. And on judgment day, that's what he's going to require of us. Every single one of you here has been given some measure of power some measure of success, and some measure of influence. It was all given to you by God himself. The question is, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? So I want to just leave you with a challenge. I'm going to put it up there, and they're going to put it up after the screen. too. So if you don't have time to write it all down, that's fine. I, I know some enterprising people, they just take pictures of it with their phones. And so uh, you can do that too, whatever you want. But I I challenge you to do this challenge this week. I often do these challenges because I just think it's so important not just to hear a message and get fired up about something. We need to go home and obedience is the thing. Jesus said, blessed are you now if you do these things. I've just shown you from scripture that everything you have is from God and that he gave it to you for a reason. You can go home with that now and just feel like, wow, that was a good message. Woo, I'm really motivated now and forget about it by tomorrow. Or we can actually take time, blessed are you if you do these things. And prayerfully take these truths to God and say, Lord Jesus, I want to give you everything. And giving you everything means putting you in charge of everything. And so a couple of challenges this week for you to pray through. And again, these these challenges will come back up on the screens after the final worship song if you want to take more time to write them down. But three things I want you to do is ask the lord what are the positions of influence god has placed me in just take stock of it some of us don't think of ourselves as people with influence we all have influence somewhere so ask jesus what are my positions of influence that you've put me in second thing then ask the lord give me two or three things i can begin doing now to use my position of influence to advance your kingdom to benefit your family and lastly just directly with your money and your finances and your wealth At some point this week, I would challenge you to, Lord, speak to me about the wealth you've given me. Am I using it for the benefit of your family and the advancement of your kingdom the way you want? Are there changes I need to make? Prayerfully do those things. Bring those things to God and see what he begins to do in your life. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to need courage. It is becoming increasingly unpopular to stand for right. But it's exactly when it becomes unpopular like this that it becomes even more important. Lord, some of the, there's going to be a lot of kids and they're going to be encouraged in all kinds of sexual immorality. They're going to be encouraged in our schools. They already are being encouraged and it's going to get worse. And Lord, we actually care about those kids. We care about those kids who sit on the fence and they might actually make a choice in the, when they're encouraged, they might make a choice that they wouldn't otherwise have made and they might make a choice that takes them on a path to hell. And Lord, we need to start being salt. We need to start being salt in the political sphere, in this community, in the business sphere. Lord, money, power, and success were given to us by you, for you, for the benefit of your family and for the advancement of your kingdom and that's how we want to use it.